This is Geek Gab with your host, John and me, Daddy Warpig. Geek Gab for Saturday, May 25th, 2019. And uh, I'm supposed to have, no doubt, a ton of fun and interesting stuff right here. But the only thing I can say is I just barely, barely, barely woke up. And barely, barely, barely got my breakfast, which I have yet to consume. I have got a Pizza Hut pocket and a frozen Go-Gurt. I have no idea what flavor this is. Strawberry. A frozen strawberry Go-Gurt. So that's how my morning afternoon's been. How are you guys? Hey. I'm I'm working off a cold here. <laughs> only the only the finest geek chow for Daddy Warpig. Um, this it's been a while since I got to say this, Brian. How about you? Doing phenomenal. I'm currently overseeing the launch of Combat Frame Exceed Collection Year Forty, the sequel to the hit Marshall Thriller Combat Frame Exceed, and uh, couldn't be more excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I mean, That's I don't want it. people to think that I'm being a slacker, being lax lackadaisical. No, I've been excited for this show. Um, for one part of the show, I've been excited for it for two weeks. For the other part of the show, I've been excited for it since um, my erstwhile co-host uh, suggested it just um, just yesterday. Um, but yeah, I am. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, th this is good, Daddy Warpig. Did you get a copy of this book? Yes, I just got it in the mail like three days ago. So you've read it already. <laughs> <laughs> we know what your TBR stack is like, DW. It's a <laughs> uh, sure, yeah. Well, I, I, you looked at it. It's, it's got a beautiful cover. Yeah. Um, I have the, I have the, I haven't received my physical copy yet. So if you're listening to the show and you're expecting a physical copy, I think those are all in the mail, right? No, I got my physical copy. Oh, well, you're one yeah. of the lucky ones. Yeah. There, there's some that haven't yet. I ordered them all on the same day, but, uh, I don't know for internal reasons, Amazon is saying that some, aren't going to show up until like early next month. But uh, yeah, they're, they're all in the mail. Uh, the only exception would be um, the couple of copies that uh, backers requested to be signed. The ones who took that perk tier. So those have got to come to me first and then I'm going to sign them and ship them right back out to the backers. Okay, cool. And, and I should say that. Um, so daddy Warpig obviously was a backer. I was a backer and, and I did the, I don't know if I mentioned this on the show. I did the uh, build a mech option for this book. So not only do you get Brian's awesome story, but you get my mech with it. Yep, and another awesome backer's mech. Uh, what what did the build a mech involve? Does it mean that your mech went into the story? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll explain it from my perspective. Uh, it was really cool. After I uh, pledged for the Build-A-Mech thing, Brian contacted me 
and we set a time aside where we could have a Skype call and talk about uh, what my ideas were. So the, the point is, is that um, you will design a mech and there are a, a few spots in the story where Brian's already planning on inserting a mech. So you get to work with him on the specs of the mech. What does it look like? What does it do? How does it fight? How does it defend itself? That sort of thing. Um, and so we just uh, we sat down and we spent uh, we spent a couple of hours uh, shooting the shit, talking about ideas um, about what kind of mech. And it was a really interesting experience for me because I'm not a big Gundam fan. I you know I'm not a I, I don't play Mech Warrior with the pieces and everything like that. So I hope that um, it was it was a fun experience for Brian because um, I don't think my ideas were normal as far as max right. go i had a blast the the so that was a lot of fun and, and so and so brian says that's that's great this is i can work with this and i know exactly where i'm going to put this in the story um and then the, there was a second part to it where uh we contacted uh his artist art anon who who does the um the sketches and and, and the drawings for uh, the website throughout the throughout the campaign brian would have blog posts with you know artwork for the mechs and everything like that so we we had an email chain back and forth with the artist where he would try to bring my idea to life on the page so to speak and and so that was a really fun process going back and forth seeing some of the early sketch ideas and and uh, and in my case i granted a lot of creative license to art anon to sort of tweak my ideas and make it uh, to, to make to make it real and, and sort of flesh it out and and I'm really happy with the results so I'm uh, assuming that like that like the Gundam series the book series has a strong design aesthetic so that all of its mechs fit in uh, similarity. So you can look at them and say, okay, yeah, that's a mech from Brian's universe. So it was one of the things Ardenon had to do was to make sure your mech fit in with that? Yeah. yeah go ahead and tell him. Sorry. I, I, was, uh, getting, I was getting the link. I didn't miss the qu hear the question. Can you repeat that, please? <laughs> He's asking if your mech fit in with the overall design aesthetic we have going for the series. <laughs> or if Ardenon, you know, massaged it. So even if it was strange, it looked, you know, kind of like the others. That's mostly no. Uh, it, it, yes, it is done by the same artist. So it has the same look and feel in terms of the lines and everything like that. It's, it's obviously the same artist. It's obviously the same art style. And yeah, when I said he gave him creative licenses, that I let um, I let him and Brian unweird it a little bit. Uh, it's it, it it does have uh, it's it's a transforming uh, mech with a more traditional sort of arms and legs sort of design. Um, but the if you if you look at the link uh, that I'm going to put it in the uh, show notes for the mech that I did, you'll see that it doesn't exactly fit with the rest of the mech designs. It's it's really strange. Um, 
had a really, 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 really good question, and my mind just said, I'm sick of this. I'm not asking it. <laughs> it's awesome. I love that. When your brain sure, just says, sure, I've had enough, awesome. this, had enough of this manual labor. I'm not doing anything. Well, uh, that... Well, I, that was the way it was from my experience building the mech and everything like that. But I'd really like to know what you think, Brian, from your perspective, because um, obviously you were happy with the result and you, and you put it in the book. I, I, have con I have since read about three quarters of the book and confirm, confirmed that it's in there. <laughs> um, but what did you think? Oh, I, I thought you knocked it out of the park. I, I particularly love the part where you've stood back and said, you know, that design feature would fit in perfectly in the soul cycle. It was something completely horrifying. So I, I, I live for moments like that. Yeah. I, I, I don't want to spoil it for people who, who haven't ahead. read, read the book yet, but yeah, it was, it was one of those things where um, we were talking about, this is the, the design. It's, it sort of looks like a giant space tick, which is really weird. And that, and that, I, I, I and that rolled out of the, the, basic concept was okay so what if this was an, an uh, a mech designed to harvest minerals from an asteroid right and so it doesn't look like a standard arm and legs humanoid thing um and then and we talked about like what weapons that implied and, and what defense mechanisms that implied and 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 brian took it a step further to something absolutely horrifying which um is it safe to spoil or or should i save that that feature no, go ahead. Um, the the um, mech would be able to harvest minerals and metals and things from asteroids to help rebuild its its systems, but it would also be able to harvest organic matter to um, for life support systems for its pilots, and that may include. Um, pilots of opposing mechs, for example, just harvest those organic materials after, um, you know, defeating it in combat. And that's when I sat back and said, that's that. And that was Brian's uh, contribution. I'm like, that's disturbing, man. That belongs in the soul cycle. That's really fucked up. Yeah. And it gets even better because uh, it uses like a nanite laden nutritive gel to do it. It actually um, breaches and injects this, this fluid into the opposing mech's cockpit. And um, so it can break down the physical structure of the enemy pilot. But then also your entire mech is, is made of artificial diamond, right? The, the entire volume of which can also double as logic crystals. So the whole thing is like a, a, a giant supercomputer at the same time with enough memory to store like all the, the, the contents of a human nervous system, like all the memories and data and personality. So as needed, the pilot of your mech can reconstitute formerly digested people or at least just parts of them, like just the nervous system and have like the brain and spinal column and eyeballs floating there, like for later interrogation or as, as needed. And then just dissolve it again. See, this is why Brian's the horror writer, and I just host a show. And and uh, co-design awesome Max. <laughs> that's that's, that's absolutely so. Yeah, so that's the cool thing. If you're thinking about ever doing something like that, 
in future books. Um, Daddy Warpig, you should definitely, or, or someone listening should definitely do the build a mech because what you'll, he'll take your idea and, and, uh, Nehemiahize it. Hey, right now, now we have a, now we have another new word associated with, uh, with my fiction that I think it's <laughs> my own fiction. Yeah. This is a little bit. Uh, do you think this is kind of the way of the future for indie authors? Are we talking about uh, crowdfunding and then releasing on Amazon after the fact and kind of collaborating with readers? Well, yeah, just the collaborating with readers, just, uh, you know, sitting down with readers and, and letting them uh, help design part of the world. It's how I intend to do things because I've, I've been doing it since the soul cycle and with uh X seed figured, you know what, if, if you're good at something, never do it for free. I might as well start charging for this. But uh, everyone who's built a mech for the series so far has just loved it. It's um, the, the, the one perk that's gotten the most um, rousing positive response. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. And I've uh, had the, the pleasure of, uh, all, all, everyone who's uh, chosen the build a big perk so far has had some great ideas and been a joy to work with. So yeah, I'm, I'm at least going to keep doing this. I definitely recommend other authors to give this a try. It's uh, incredibly rewarding. I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm just intrigued by it. It's uh, really? cause, cause this is what I found out on Twitter. Um, that you're going to get more good ideas from the mass of people who follow you than you can come up with on your own. And it doesn't matter how smart you are or how talented you are. Um, and if you're coming up with, you know, let's say 10 or 12 good ideas in a day, you're still going to be outnumbered. All those good ideas from your followers are going to way outnumber them because they outnumber you by, <laughs> you know, thousands or tens of thousands to one, depending on who you are, um, or hundreds to one or whatever. Hmm. And collectively, they're more creative than you'll, uh, than you're capable of being, even if you're really talented. And so the thought of tapping into that creativity um, is just, I find that a really intriguing idea. Yeah, I recommend it. And, uh, Leading Hispanic author John Delarose is in the chat. He says, I'm going to be writing my Max into the books probably in about two weeks. Uh, if you design it, I'll put it in there. And he says, there, there will be two mechs for my one for each of my night main characters. So I don't know if he's addressing the chat specifically. I, the well, I, I've challenged to let him to let me build another mech. I, I think... I think it, it's a great. It was a great and rewarding experience for me. Brian already said it was a rewarding experience. It's a really cool idea. I hope it is the future of this um, sort of genre fiction where um, you can take a detail like that, or you can say, "Hey, um, this is something that I can work with a reader on," and they get a little bit. They feel like they get a little bit of ownership, right? A little extra buy-in, and and they get to influence the story um, with the author still having full control over what actually happens. I mean, it sounds cool. I love it. I love the idea of it. Um, and it's more than you would ever see from like trad pub. Uh, and 
not necessarily that Trab Pub never does it, but most of the Trab Pub stuff I've seen is auctioning off a red shirt appearance for charity or whatever. Mm -hmm. Nothing like this. Well, I do that too. Um, I have two other perks. One is, well, actually three. One is uh, you can be in a book. Um, so I, I will just name a character after you and write them in there. Then there's be killed in a book where I will do that and then kill you in an interesting and fun way. And, it, and it's me. So, you know, it's, it, it's, it's going to be, you're not just going to be like dying of a heart attack while shoveling snow or hit by a bus or something. And that's actually been the most popular of those perks. Like, people, <laughs> like I, I sold, I sell out of them right away. And then the, the third is you can just create a custom character, not necessarily um, modeled on you or a loved one or enemy. <laughs> that's an option too. Is is that popular? Do people uh, purchase the "Kill Me in a Book" and you have their enemies get blasted into outer space or something? I'm surprised no one's done that yet. Apparently my readership uh, aren't quite as, as vicious as I'd hoped, but uh, I'm slowly working on them. As, uh, <laughs> by, by, by the scandalous example of the what can only be called the main protagonist of Collection Year 40. <laughs> so let's assume that there are people listening to the show who uh, weren't in on the Kickstarter um, and are thinking this sounds intriguing, what would be your sales pitch? My sales pitch would be that uh, Common Frame XC Coalition Year 40 is Gundam Wing meets Ender's Game. Or if you're not into Gundam Wing, then you can substitute Macross, Battletech, or even Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Because there, uh, there is that element in the uh, the pilot selection process, but I got as, that. Um, I as got a reviewer, that reference. yeah, as, as a reviewer on uh, on Larry Larry Cree, so I from the show uh, Larry Cree, the the mountain that writes, said, "Is it uh, okay? So if you're a Mecha fan, particularly Gundam, there are going to be a ton of references of, of tropes from that genre. You're going to pick up on." right away and enjoy if you're not a mecha fan yet these books are well written enough that you just might be when you're done reading um i i kind of felt that way after the first one it was very heavy on the mecha combat and the mechs themselves were characters as well as the pilots yeah so um the, the fight the fight scenes did give me that sort of sense that, that I was rooting for the mechs itself. Um, Coalition Year 40 is is a lot more focused on the pilots themselves. Uh, so I, I don't get that strong um, sense of personality from the mechs at least three quarters of the way through the book. But um, but that's where you say it's Ender's Game. It's it's definitely, this one's more about the pilots and their choices. Yeah, it's more the the human drama angle. And Coalition Year 40 was a book that you didn't originally intend to write. Well, um, it was, at least if I remember the last time you were on the show, mm -hmm. it was the prequel or the background to the next book. And you said, well, this sounds so interesting. I need to write it. Oh, other way around. Common Frame Exceed was the, the background 
Uh, Ocean Route 40 was the first one I wanted to write, and then uh, got into that line and realized, you know, I'm going to need to go back and fill in some of this for many of the reasons that John just covered. Well, th there's another parallel with Ender's Game. Supposedly, um, Arson Scott Card had to write Ender's Game uh, before he wrote Speaker for the Dead. Oh. And and you did the same thing in the Soul Cycle, where you, you, you also said that Soul Dancer was the first one you intended to write. Yep, I, I keep doing this, but uh, well, it's working out. As yeah, as long as you're producing good books that the audience likes, then you know, hey, whatever works. Well, thanks for vote of confidence. But yeah, um, a, another unintended consequence of the writing process was that I, I originally wanted to make Coalition Your Forty One book, but got into the actual writing of it, and it was starting to push the the length limit a bit. And I, I wasn't, I was only like halfway done. I realized, you know what, I'm going to have to split this both in the interests of time and page count, but also because I think I've, I've told a complete story here. Like I got to the point where I felt that the themes were resolved that I wanted to introduce. And I find there, there is this natural dividing line. So I'm splitting the coalition, your 40 arc into two books the first one of which is out right now. There's also 99 cents right now, folks, for, for your long car ride or airport layover this holiday weekend. And um, I've begun work on the second and final part of the CY40 arc, which I'm going to call Comet Frame XC and Coalition Year 40 Second Coming. That's this a mouthful. Is... <laughs> I'm going to abbreviate. <laughs> but again, I'm following the tropes of uh, like the Gundam series. Oh, they've got all the long names with multiple subtitles. Yeah, yeah, they 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 do because like um like Gundam Wings will titles technically like new mobile report Gundam Wing Miller's report or something like that. And <laughs> it's like I, mobile suit Gundam Iron Blooded Orphans and yeah, I'm sure I'm, I'm forgetting or like a uh, mobile suit Gundam Seed, like and then the. I forget the date, but then like the date, Stargazer, and yeah. Let me ask you a question, and this is going to be kind of an abrupt change, but it's on the topic of writing characters and stuff. There is a new phrase. There is a phrase which is old that has become my new most loathed phrase in writing, and that phrase is character arc. Hmm. I hate it. I want to burn it with fire. And let me tell you why. I think it's one of those words that everybody uses, but most people, not everyone, but most people don't really have a, a, a clear or strong idea of what it means on a technical basis. And then um, I think it's been used so much and the assumptions behind the bad definition or the misdefinition or the unexamined definition have been so ingrained in it's what i call a literary critic word it's not a word that was really developed by writers for writers it was a word developed by literary critics so they could be pompous when they're discussing writing instead of actually illuminating what the book was really about and there's a lot of that there's a lot of those theories like oh 
People don't sit around telling each other things they already know, so you shouldn't do that in your book. And I'm like, baloney! People sit around telling each other things they already know all the time. Have you ever heard someone discussing sports? Have you ever heard someone discussing politics? Have you ever heard people arguing about the causes of World War I? They tell each other historical facts that both of them know all the time. In fact, there are in old magazines whole letter columns that consisted solely of people telling each other what they already knew. I hate it. Literary critics have poisoned the minds of writers and have poisoned the minds of readers that have listed this long BS list of requirements or uh, lit, uh, critical frames, right, to analyze stories through, and they're wrong. So much of it is wrong. And my latest example of that is character arc. Hmm. Um, so let me, as a writer, what I think of in terms of a character is you have a character and he's got a personality and he's got a background and he goes through kind of his own little story that's part of the bigger story. And it's just a story. That's all it is. It's just a story. You're telling a story of this character. You have you have designed him or were inspired or are borrowing him. And sometimes and people say, well, it's not a character arc if it doesn't make changes in the character. And I'm like, well, what the hell is a change in the character? How big is that supposed to be? What kind of change? I mean, you have a character go through his story, and he's kind of angry at another person, but by the end of the story, um, they've worked it out for whatever reason. That's a little change. Is that a quote-unquote character arc? In people who say, well, all characters must go through a character arc, or it's a bad story. And this is where lay people who have been miseducated uh, it's not their fault. I'm not blaming them. That's where they get into it is they think, oh, yes, that makes sense. Everybody has to go through a character arc, only they don't have an actual definition in mind. They don't have a concrete definition. It's just kind of this vague thing that people sort of got as an idea, but nobody's uh, in a way that the layperson will understand has defined it. Um, and I'm not interested in super defining it because I want to get away from that term. I hate it. it, it, it I loathe this uh, murky, nebulous uh, kind of, of terms and concepts writers have to work with and, and have to think that their work has to live up to these arbitrary external specifications or they're not writing a good story. I mean, there's a meme, right? The meme goes... Um, and I'm going to edit this for the family because we're a family PG show. It's um, forget your nonsense. Fun things are fun. It, that's what a story is. If you don't have to have, you don't have to have anything uh, as long as the story works. And the better, the more you strip off these external constraints, uh, and I'm going to get real deep literarily here. Procrustes bed. 
the mm. Procrustes bed. It's where a uh, in I believe Greek mythology, where there was a giant who, um, if you were too short for his bed, he would put you on the rack, which is a torture device, and stretch you until you fit. And if you were too tall for his bed, he would chop off bits of your legs until you fit. It's all a metaphor, or this has become a metaphor, for trying to mutilate your work as an artist in order to fit arbitrary external constraints. And so I think that all of these literary critic-inspired rules and limits are an example of Procrustes' bed, that they want you to stretch your story in different ways than it should go. They want you to chop up your stories in different ways than it should go. And you should just take all of these, like the Bechdel test, or the yeah. advanced hyper new Bechdel test, or even for people who are really good people who have sincere desires and sincere drives, they want to make sure their book is uh, theologically correct with whatever religion they're an adherent to, and all of these other things, just throw them away because it is you and your idea of how people or characters work and what the story you want to tell on the page is and just write the best story you can, get some feedback, forget about the external constraints, then go on to the next story and try to do it better. Um, you don't have to use character art or whatever. Just write a story. See, I went off into a rant and then you triggered a second rant. I was like, wow, that's two rants. I'm making up for lost time. See, folks, you, you always get more than the price of admission on GeekGab. <laughs> so so i guess my question would be you know as a writer do you think i'm wrong or right or would you say that in a different way or is there something i might be missing i'm gonna admit i'm intrigued because one thing you're definitely right about is that's just such boilerplate writing advice that it's become part of the scenery that you don't really even question like oh that grandfather clock's always always been there right uh so while I do tend to take the conservative approach of asking why the fence is there before demolishing it, uh, I, I really have to consider what you said because as uh, Bradford Walker pointed out in the chat, you know, J James Bond and Conan don't have character arcs, but they're wildly successful. People love them. James Bond in particular has met with a great deal of uh, pushback from fans over uh, Ian Productions, uh, recent attempts to change him. So I'm going to have to say, I suppose it's what kind of story are you telling? I mean, if you were telling like this kind of intimate character study parable, then you might need one. So I mean, if, uh, if the conflict and enjoyment of your story requires having a character arc and revolves around that, then yes, you need a character arc but yeah, I'd have to agree that they're not always necessary, but at least I have to go that far. Let, let me, um, and I absolutely do not mean this as, a, as an insult. Um, there are specific people of which I'm one who are very 
analytical when it comes to stories and storytelling. Um, as readers, they're analytical of the, what they're reading, and as writers, they're analytical of what they're writing. And I tend to think that stories are best when they're recognizably human, when they're just stories of people doing things and things happening to those people. Um, and that you should get away from arbitrary, intellectualized, external um, constraints. Don't worry if you're in the pulp revolution. Don't worry if your story is pulp enough or not. Just write what you think is a good story. If you're part of the superversive SF movement, don't worry about whether or not your book is superversive. Just do it. And as far as um, Christians go, who are sincere people that want to make sure that their book is good and 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 I mean morally good, uplifting and stuff. My response to them is, and always has been, that you as a Christian, if you are a good person inside, then your work will be good and you don't have to work at it. You don't have to assemble a checklist. And this is where I think it gets bad, really bad is that character arc and all these other terms become a checklist that you have to go through to make sure your story fits. If you're a good person, then your work will be good. If you're not a good person, if you are too enamored of whatever, um, drugs or whatever, then your work's gonna have problems. So don't worry about it. Don't feel guilty about it. Write the best story that you know how and just move on to the next one. Checklists are not necessary. Um, and I think you'll be happier as a writer. I think your stories will be more natural. They will be more, um, they'll be less um, artificial, less stilted. And I think you will reach a point where you can uh, move audience members emotionally far, far easier if you're interacting with them in a naturalistic fashion than if you are following some checklist. And I'll be honest, I think that the checklists come from writers who are really, really scared. And I don't mean that in an insulting way. You, you want to be a writer. You want to tell stories. You want to publish your stories and get them out there and have other people read them and like them. And so you immediately start looking for, okay, how do I tell a good story? What's a good story like? How can I do what I'm supposed to do so it'll end up with a good story at the end of it? Again, I absolutely am not putting writers down. I completely understand that kind of impetus. But in doing that, you tend to accumulate these long lists of must-dos, must-not-dos, whatever, and I really think that they end up getting in your way. I think they end up harming your own goal of writing good stories or writing good books. The more you can get beyond intellectualisms, the more you can get into the soul of what it means as a character, and that's why you should observe people. That's why you should have a full life outside of fiction, outside of role-playing, outside of, you know, whatever. Go out and interact in the real world um, because those are all things that 
are going to educate you as to what human beings are like and that you shouldn't have to rely on checklists of what you know attributes a character needs or whatever just write your story don't worry about the checklists now there are some things you need to do like you need to learn how to you know write a coherent sentence you need to learn how to put in punctuation you need to learn how to chop your stuff up into paragraphs but you can learn those things that's the skill of composition and everybody who writes reports for a company who writes you know uh who writes manuals for stereos everybody needs to learn how to do composition but writers uh once you've learned composition and you know the rules and then you can break them don't have to worry about that it's all about putting together a good story and doing it as entertainingly as possible and don't use checklists like that because i think they get in the way of good writing i i, I agree my comments are along the same lines as logic monkeys in chat it sounds like the things that you're complaining shouldn't be on a checklist. They're all tools in a writer's toolbox. I, I can see in, um, speaking of Brian's book, Coalition Year 40, it's, like I said before, it's a, very much about the pilots. So having satisfying character arcs are going to be, is going to be one of the tools um, necessary to bring that story along because you've got a, a cast of characters who are all in you know developmental age of their lives and there's an additional character who's more like a force of nature <clears throat> i think a force of evil is a better word but I'll, I'll leave the readers to decide right and so it's their decisions and how that how the situation and that that force of evil uh changes them right it's going to be interesting to see how they achieve their goals uh, while dealing with this monster uh, and and that's the sort of thing that can generate interesting character arcs where you can see where a character acts one way uh, at the beginning of the story and after the events of the story or throughout the events of the story, you can see them sort of make decisions differently. They, they've sort of, they, they, they've learned something about themselves or about the world or about evil that they want to uh, act differently. So in that case, using a character arc is a good tool for telling that story. Or, or it's a good way of describing the way the story plays out, if that makes okay. sense. You, yes, you've helped me crystallize something. I think I have a, I'm, I'm developing a philosophy of character arcs now that if you are consistently following your character's motivations, if, if you know your characters, you know what they want, and you know their personalities, and you apply that with internal consistency, then... If a character would have an arc in response to stimuli in the story, then he's going to have the arc. The, the arc should unfold organically from a character's interaction with the events of the story and with the other characters. Exactly. Yes. And that's like we say in uh, software development, when you're writing specs for, for things you want to create, you don't be prescriptive. You don't say, build me a widget that looks exactly like this and does that. You say, 
I want you to enable this feature. I want you to enable, I want this thing to happen in the story, right? And so the, the character arc is descriptive. It doesn't it's not a thing that you put on a list that you say, Well, I add a Jim Bob to the story. What's Jim Bob's arc? No, no, no. You right. you tell you tell the story and the character arc is something that happens organically through the story. Here, here. I just find that as I progress in my writing career, the uh the checklist stuff, like the the fundamentals stuff, right? Which, which is important. It's vitally important to learn. Like UW said, the the sentence and paragraph level skills, they used to be super important and in the forefront of my mind. And again, I would not quite the point of intellectual paralysis, but almost the point of paranoia. Just go over everything with a fine tooth comb after I've, I'd written it to make sure it uh, it conformed to these uh, rules of writing I learned, but as I go along, I suppose gain, gain confidence or gain skill. They, they're always there, but they, th those rules recede in favor of other concerns, right? Just more immediate stuff. Like is this satisfying to me and the reader? Is this character interesting? Exactly. Is, is it interesting? So I suppose it's, more like jazz, and I think I've made this analogy before, but with writing, yeah, it's essential to learn the fundamentals and get enough experience so that you can break those rules in fun ways that work. Um, I, I think that what you're saying about things arising organically from the story um, is the real key. Because at that point, you're focusing on who are these people and how are they interacting in the story? Here, here's, another, uh, here's another example of a higher level um, thought process. You're doing your background design, you're thinking about characters, and you've got two things and you're trying to figure out how they fit together and it's just not working. It may not be working because those two things should be separate. They shouldn't be one. And maybe you're thinking of a character and you're starting to write their background, but you realize, man, this is really complex. This is really complicated. I don't, I don't see how this is supposed to work out. I mean, I like all these ideas. And sure, when I thought of the character, I had put them all together. But man, this seems just really pointlessly labyrinthine. Well, maybe what's happening is that you're actually talking about two characters and you need to recognize that and separate them out and make them two characters and write the story that way. I mean, there's a lot of things that are just kind of intuition. And I, I understand it may be strange coming from a person uh, with my personality and background, but the more you depend on your intuition as a writer, the more you depend on you know, just feeling your way through the story, I think the better your story will be. Yeah, you've, you've got to inform that intuition, right? You've, you, you've got to give it the bedrock foundation to operate off of, or is, is a springboard, I suppose. But I mean, what, what is intuition? It's, it's logic, but it skips steps. And yeah, the more experienced you get, just the more you write, 
the more intuitively these story elements are going to come to you. And yeah, I, I agree. By and large, you should trust it. You should trust your gut. Yeah, if it feels like it's not working, even if you don't know why, it's probably not working. You should take a look at it. If it feels like it is working and you don't know why, then probably it is working. Or at the very least, write the story that way and see how it comes out and maybe share it with some other people and see what they think. Yeah, that's what beta readers are for. And, and again, as you've said before in the past about beta readers, you ask them, you know, was any of this unclear and was any of it boring? Mm -hmm. You absolutely do not want people who will give you a literary checklist. You want people who say, I don't understand why uh, he broke up with her at this point. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, she has this information that he needs and he truly loves her and there doesn't seem like anything happened to make him break up with him. I, I just don't understand. It's confusing. Okay. That may be a clue as a writer. You need to go back and, and look at that. If, if you're trying to make them break up just because that's what's necessary for the next step in the plot, um, that's probably a bad idea. Yeah, character arc. <laughs> um, yeah. So you might want to go back and say, okay, well, why would he break up with her and then change his psychology as a character, change his motivations, change how he sees the world, and make something that would fit organically in him that would cause that reaction? I mean, if you need that to happen, you have to build the circumstances that lead to that so that it just happens as part of the story and the audience is like, oh, okay, I see. Yeah, you're here. You want that kind of moment of clarity in the reader's head. Is that so, yeah. <laughs> Dude, we were going to also talk about John Wick 3, but before we do, I want to give you a last chance to, uh, to shill your novel. Okay. Greatly appreciated. Yes. So here, here it is, folks. The long-anticipated long-promised sequel to the hit mecha-thriller Comet Frame Exceed, where I take all of your favorite Japanese anime mecha-tropes and kind of give, give them a spit-shine and, and a polish, run, run them through the more Western three-act structure pulpish ringer and come up with something that I... I think, and many readers agree, is the best of both worlds. So, whereas in the first book, we set up the tyrannical coalition of space colonists that have dominated the Earth and turned the humans living on Earth into second-class citizens and saw the beginnings of a full-scale military pushback against them in Coalition Year 40, named because it takes place 40 years after the events of the first book, we see the opposition of the coalition shift from military scale to insurgents, guerrillas, and partisans. In particular, a student group operating underground at uh, one of the coalition service academies on Earth. And we see these young people caught up in uh, this uh, twisted kind of... Uh, Willy Wonka game 
put on by these uh, sort of the, the secret cabal opposed to the coalition uh, that's been working behind the scenes for the last 40 years to bring uh, this resistance to fruition. So I know a lot of you who read the first book came away just hating the coalition, thinking they're enemies of the human race. They, they need to be taken down a peg. Well, my goal of Coalition Year 40 is to set up an opponent to the coalition that will make you pity them. Not necessarily root for them, but uh, yeah, John, I'm going to call on you here again. You had a, a similar reaction, right, in, in terms of your perception of the coalition in this book be, because of this this monster I've created to oppose them, right? Yes, you, you've created a, such a monster. There's a character that I earlier referred to as a force of evil. And if you thought the Coalition were the bad guys, they are. They're not good people. They're, they, they, they treat the people of Earth like uh, worse than peasants. They're dogs. But they're not necessarily evil. This, this thing, this, this character, <laughs> this, this character's evil. And he's not on their side. Yeah, and also, of, of course, giant robots and pilots getting in the giant robots and fighting each other. Uh, it's awesome. I'm I'm about three quarters of the way through the book myself, and it's definitely more focused, more character focused than the first X Seed. But the the that enhances the giant robot fights. Uh, the actions there. All right. Thanks, uh, thanks for backing me up. So if you folks are interested in a mecha martial thriller that brings you new scenarios, new conflicts, new characters with the same flavor that you loved in the first book, check out Collision Year 40. It's on sale now for 99 cents. You can find the link below in the show notes. All right. So I saw John Wick 3. Yeah, we, we've, we did a hat trick, DW. We've all seen John Wick 3. Really? Yeah, really. I think this is probably the second time it's ever happened in Geek Gab history. I, I'm shocked. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to collect myself. I, I I don't know what to do. How do we do this when we've all seen the movie? Well, I I have to address for anybody who reads Brian's blog. He's he's really anti Hollywood these days. So how did you how did you come to actually watch this this film? I did a lot of homework. Because my my tagline is apparently "Don't give money to people who hate you," even though uh, I I stole it from Cerno, but I'm glad people associate it with me. So yeah, I spent some time on the internet trying to figure out if the makers of John Wick Three hate me. And uh, like, uh, luckily, Lionsgate is a distributor. Luckily, on their website, there was no banner that saying "We've proudly partnered with." Right. So aside from the usual just caveat yeah bubble dweller stuff uh it didn't didn't find anything like hideously evil and uh i i know the director he was like not personally but he was a stunt coordinator on the crow i've i've followed his career for a while he's he's a stand-up guy so I, i fully support him and i mean lionsgate started out as a sort of a spunky upstart little engine that could studio so that they're certainly not like Warner or Disney. So I, I felt justified in supporting this product. 
all right, you didn't feel bad about it. And and I know um, I know Daddy Warp. I saw this too. I know Daddy Warpig. You loved this film, didn't you? You absolutely loved every minute of it. Sure. And and I'll be honest. You can sit there and pick some things apart with this movie. You can say, well, the plot has a hole here or whatever. I, I don't care uh, because it was just awesome. They had action scene after action scene, all of which were completely different from each other and completely different from what went on in earlier John Wick movies. They just keep raising the bar on what you can do in action movies. And it's uh, amazing. Um, you see, and, and they didn't originate this term, the directors and who also wrote it, didn't originate this term, but they call it gun fu, right? It's like kung fu, but you add in firearms? Yeah, that was th that was way back in, uh, what's his name? John Woo, when Chow Yun-Fat was, was, when he and John Woo were making films, they, they coined the term gun fu. Right. Oh. So in this movie, you get to see how gun fu, how John Wick's gun fu can be used in many different situations. And all of them, for me, were breathtaking. And you can say, okay, well, this sequence wasn't as good as the others. Okay, yeah, that's true. It's not as good as the other stuff in this movie, but. That's always going to be the case. Not everything's going to be equally good, but it's still not bad. Um, I liked, in particular, the one that really stood out for me for being vastly different from what I had seen. And maybe people who have seen Hong Kong kung fu movies a lot will say, oh, yeah, that's kind of like this particular fight from this particular movie with, you know, Cynthia Rock, Rock, <laughs> or whatever. And... I, I'm fine with that. That's okay. Um, but man, that knife fight in the store. That was something else. That was just beyond. It was, it was like something they also made it funny. There was like something out of <laughs> a, a Jackie Chan film. They, 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 they run out of bullets and they realize they're in a store full of uh, knives <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, Oh, here we go. <laughs> Let's just do this. Yeah. And then the scene with the, the scaffolding, like that that sequence made me turn to my buddy I was seeing it with and saying, oh, yeah, well, they're, they're totally paying homage to Jackie Chan. Because I noticed homages to a bunch of different movies throughout this one. I don't know if you guys caught them. Uh, I didn't catch any. I didn't catch the homages specifically. What did you see? Oh, I'm, I'm trying to remember. Because I, I saw it way back on Tuesday. There were several times I was like, yeah, I, I know where that came from. I know where that came from. So like the... The, the Jackie Chan stuff, I definitely picked up on. Um, continue talking. You might have to give me a minute. Yeah, the, well, the, the, the opening, I think the opening 30 minutes were the strongest. They opened up. Remember, at the end of John Wick 2, he is about to be hunted by all the assassins in the world. Right. They, they, they put a hit on his head for an absurd amount of money. So it opens with him trying to escape New York City. Uh, and so it pretty much opens with probably the best action scene in the in the film it involves you know running gunning kung fu the the police uh the police horses he uh, there there are, are there's horse riding involved uh, with all the tricks that you can imagine in that sort of a uh, uh, action scene uh, oh, so and I, sorry i remembered a big one like in in that same store sequence uh, where he first breaks in there 
and uh, breaks open the antique gun case. And he pulls out like that old, I think it's a, a Colt Navy revolver. And at first, the, the cylinder is the wrong size for the ammunition. So he has to break down the gun and, re and, and rebuild it. That's from the good, the bad, and the ugly. They directly... They oh, wow. I don't remember that scene. That was cool. That was a really cool scene. It was. It, it was awesome. And you're just... <laughs> the guys are coming up the stairs and they're going to bust in any minute. And you're, and there, I felt genuine tension. It's like, cause in John mm -hmm. movies, yeah, he may survive without a gun, but um, he's going to be, you know, really, really desperately pressed against the wall even more so. And you're waiting to see if he gets this gun together. It, it was a perfect way to build tension that in lesser hands would have just been cliched and boring, but with these directors, it was like, no. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's Tuco who does it in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Um, I thought that Halle Berry did a very, very good job with her her action scenes. Sort of a sort of a thankless job. Actually, a couple weeks ago, I saw you can, much like Keanu Reeves doing Three Gun, you can watch her uh, practicing for the film and and so there's some clips on youtube of halle berry doing three gun uh at the range uh it's really cool to watch um and, and i think the i mean it's kind of a thankless job one of one of my minor complaints about the movie is that they had to drop in a few new characters that you kind of don't really care about and so you've got a bunch of awkward exposition to sort of bring them into the story including halle berry's character but she was there for one thing and one thing only and the beautiful set piece gun battle that basically takes place on a police canine training range, <laughs> including the, the German shepherds. Amazing, amazing animals, uh, perfectly trained. The stunts that they pull with the, with the gun battles and the kung fu and mixing the dogs in with the action, absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous scene. Got to cut in here. Those aren't German shepherds, sir. Oh, Those my mistake. Melanois. Yes, they're of course they were the the browner coat. I should have uh, should have known that. Yeah, my my dad is a retired policeman, and one of his buddies on the force was a canine officer who had a a Malinois uh, police dog like that. And uh, one day we we just uh, stopped by his buddy's house like um, to, to drop something off or something, and so I'm standing there in his front yard. And then out of the corner of my eye, I just catch this flicker of movement. And then here is this like russet and, and black colored thing just, just on a tear right toward me, just darting right toward me. <laughs> and uh, I didn't even have time to feel fear. I was like, ha, I wonder if he's going to eat me. We'll see how this turns <laughs> out. And but my dad is actually kind of freaked out because he knows what this dog is capable of and it had never met me. But it just, zoomed right up to me, stopped on a dime, just plopped its butt down right on my foot and just demanded to be pet. <laughs> um, there isn't a whole lot... I mean, there isn't a whole lot you can say about a great movie, except I enjoyed it a lot. I would highly recommend you go see it. I would highly recommend you watch the other John Wicks. That's what I did. Like, the day before I saw it, I watched John Wick 1 and 2 and then went and saw the movie. Um, and it just held up uh, as 
as part of a trilogy, as a standalone action film. You don't have to see the other two movies to understand or enjoy this one, but man, uh, it was a really good experience to see all three in, in short uh, succession. Um, I'm gonna be a, uh, I'm gonna be a little more sanguine about it because I really enjoyed it and and the action scenes at least in the first half of the film were really great. I would say that if you did not like John Wick two, don't see this one. Uh, if if you liked John Wick two, you're gonna absolutely love this. And like you said, as a standalone, if you like action flicks, if you like the gun fu, you probably already saw John Wick. Um, uh, John Wick the first one is still um, a by an order of magnitude the superior of the three um and i'll tell you why you said you're gonna nitpick about things i'm, I'm gonna nitpick about things uh, i think they made a, a couple of mistakes the best thing uh in my mind about john wick was and remember we talked about this when we first did the episode do you remember how we talked about how cool the world was the the world building where they they sort of uh implied this wacky underground assassin ring and 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 um how criminal organizations run rampant throughout the world do you remember that yes they in john wick 2 and further in this in this in john wick 3 they they chose to expand that like let's show more of that world and frankly it's it's a little hokey and a little disappointing um to the point where in john wick 3 they sort of threw their hands up and said i give up there's no there's no hidden underworld where crime happens it's just the whole world is a, is a bunch of crime families you know the, the barista at the starbucks is also an assassin or an informant you know um instead of instead of covert fighting and killing in the alleys or in in designated locations right they're just slaughter half a dozen people in grand central station and apparently nobody's an innocent bystander like nobody reacts to the to the you know the literal ninjas running through uh, slaughtering people with their swords that sort of thing um which it made it a fun movie but uh for people who enjoyed the world building or the potential hinted in john wick that's why i said if you didn't like john wick 2 you wouldn't like this one um i will say this this is just a funny aside you had a better idea of what the gold coins were for than the directors did. It and that was one of the worst. Uh, it's worst is a strong word. That was the worst scene in John Wick Three. They actually are at a facility that mints the coins, and they had this character explain the purpose of the coins. Everybody who's seen John Wick understands intuitively what the coins are. There's no point for that speech at all. It's terrible. Uh, I just remember when I remember when we were watching the show, uh, or when we were doing the show. One of the things you said was, "Oh yeah, the idea that they have these coins that mark favors, you know, that you can do a favor for someone else, or or get paid to, for you doing a favor. That's that's what the gold coins are." I thought that's perfect. That perfectly encapsulates what those going gold coins were. And then I heard uh, I watched interviews with the directors. Uh, part of their commentary for John Wick 2. I watched, you know, what what processes they went through and stuff. And uh, they also did some interviews in connection with the Honest trailer for John Wick 1. The two directors came on, and then they did an interview. So I watched those on YouTube. 
And they didn't, at least at that time, they didn't have any grasp for what the gold coins were. Because they were asking him, well, what about this? What about that? And they were saying, well, you know, we figure they're this. And I'm like, John knew? John, <laughs> my co-host, knew better than you guys. That's awesome. <laughs> is, that's what that's what was so great about John Wick. It it implied this world and you got everything you kind of needed to know about the world to make the story work and to hang these amazing action scenes on. Yeah. So yeah, I just I really liked the movie. Maybe uh liked it more than uh and I'm not saying Dornell's wrong. I'm just saying that I didn't care. Yeah, there's there, there's a couple of different people uh, coming at this movie, and for the for the people who just enjoy the pure action scenes, uh, they did awesome, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Well, I've I've got another nit. I think the the fights at the end of the film were poorly choreographed, but um, just go back and remember the canine fight scene if you're worried <laughs> about that. The the fights in the latter part weren't as good as the fights in the first half. That is true. Um, um, I, I actually really want to hear Brian's take on, on the world building thing. Where do you fall on that axis? Okay. Well, first of all, I've, I've got to agree that the fight scenes, especially in the first half actually managed to top the first two movies, which I, I didn't think anyone could do, but if anyone can, of course it's the creators of John Wick. So yeah, in terms of just pure action, this is the best one. I, I was thoroughly entertained the whole time. I enjoy the movie. I'd recommend it. However, yes, it is in terms of like the, the craft and specifically the story structure that I, I, I have at least one major problem with this movie. And I think it has to do with the fact that they've now greenlit a John Wick chapter four. And this could have to do with my expectations going in, but I went in expecting to see this saga wrapped up. I was expecting closure because uh, I, I believe as we, we talked about last time, part two definitely has, it, it ends like the, the Empire Strikes Back did, right? You've got that low point, everyone's after him. So I thought, oh, this one's gonna be like the, the rise from the low point uh, to where the, the hero claims victory, right? And I, I'm not going to spoil anything, but I, I'll just say that it seems like because we, well, we do know now that there's going to be a part four, not everything gets tied up in, in a package here. It seems like, whereas with some movies, you see it and you say, you know what, that needed just one more script revision to, to just nail it to be perfect. I think they did one too many with this. I just in, in my head, I imagine that there's a prior draft of the script for this that did reach an actual conclusion, but then they got the call. Okay. A, a dump truck full of money is inbound to the director's front yards. So he will do a fourth one. <laughs> and they're like, okay, well we, we got to stretch this out now. So it's not that it felt like there was filler in John Wick three, but there was at least one subplot that just, doesn't go anywhere and didn't need to be there. It was uh, it it broke the the South Park rule 
it broke the and then rule because we we had an entire and then story arc and um i will i will just identify it by by saying like the the desert story arc yeah yeah, yeah. it doesn't accomplish anything no it doesn't it's, it's right back where he started immediately after it it's it's too bad because i i think you're probably right they they said let's just keep making money off of this because i think like you i was expecting i mean in in john wick one in john wick it was like okay they won't leave me alone i guess i'm i'm back in and that was sort of the theme of the second one, but I mean, by by the end of the second one, you sort of get the idea that he's realized that he's going to have to go to the top and and do something big, right? He's he's got to he's got to overturn whatever grand conspiracy won't let him go, and or die trying. I don't know why they needed a fourth movie to do that, right? That should have been what happened in this film, and it didn't. Yeah, but that's okay, right? Uh, th- that's okay. Uh, the, the, honestly, Keanu Reeves is a big draw. Uh, he he he's a lot of fun to watch on the screen. So I don't blame them for keeping the character alive for another, or, or not wrapping up his main story for another. Actually, they did wrap up his main story at the end of the first film. They should just keep making films with different characters. Yeah, that was something my buddy pointed out. He's like, "Yeah, hey, remember when you could." have a movie where you tell a story of the definite beginning, middle and end and you wrap things up and then just do a sequel anyway. Or just, okay, here's, here's a new story with these characters in the setting. Yeah. Like, um, Indiana Jones, right? They could, let's uh, have another, have a new story. Forget about what happened with the Nazis in the Ark. Let's just here. Look, there's a temple of doom. Have fun. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been much better. Like, oh, well, John Wick's not out, so let's tell another story. It doesn't have to be this episodic sort of um, thing. Mm-hmm. Like, let's explore a little bit more of this world, and, and instead of making that underworld scene integral to the pop plot, which it did by the end of John Wick 2. Yeah, and again, I, I think I can safely speak for all of us and saying we, we all loved the movie. We, we all thoroughly enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's just these are, are ways that they could have made it even better by uh, ironically giving us less of it. I don't know, <laughs> or at least not it, at least wrapping up the the trilogy before maybe starting fresh in the fourth one. Yeah, but you can hardly blame them. They're like, hey, nah. um, we we do great stuff. Audiences audiences are buying the tickets. Uh, we can. Uh, who cares if the narrative's shaky? We're gonna hang all these amazing fight scenes on it. Yeah. All right. Well, um, we are over time. Hmm. We we started over time, so it's okay. Oh, did we? Well, well, but we only started about an hour late. It's okay. Um, is there? A... <laughs> we're, we're making up for lost time. That's it. We're not over time. We're making up for lost time. Yeah, we're, we're giving you professionals. We we know what we're doing. We're giving you more of the show as an apology for uh, being late to start. Yeah, that's it. That's the ticket. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's certainly yes. not that YouTube back to dump truck full of money up to Daddy Word Pigs front lawn and demanded more geek ad. That's <laughs> is, there, uh, is there any last things before we before we take off, guys? Um, well, uh, Brian, thanks for coming on on short notice. Uh, I'm really glad uh, to 
start reading that book. Um, it's always good to have you on as the co-host. And uh, additionally, thanks to the chat for hanging out. We had a lot of good people uh, talking live tonight. It's always a pleasure to come and get with you guys and the chat. I wish I could do it more often. We'll, we'll definitely have to do this again. Oh, for sure. Is it, is it my turn? Is this when I'm supposed to do something? Uh, Daddy Warpig, do you have any last words? Would you care? I will make a, a generous request of you, Daddy Warpig. Would you please add final thoughts and close the show for us? Um, like everybody else, I thank all the guys uh, showing up in the chat. Had a great discussion today in the chat. So those of you who are listening to this show uh, sometime someplace else than live, go to YouTube and check out the chat. It's uh, very illuminating, very interesting. Um, and unfortunately, we didn't get to all the good all the good comments that showed up in the chat for the show, uh, but it's worthwhile. Um, I, and I also want to thank Brian for coming on to talk about his new novel. Definitely check that out. Uh, if you like big metal robots doing bad things, big metal human piloted robots doing bad things to other big metal human piloted robots. Um, if, if you like that sort of thing, this book is absolutely what you're looking for. Um, I just want to say uh, that Geek Gab is available on YouTube at youtube.com slash geekgab. We're available on SoundCloud. We're available on the Google Play Store, and we're available on the iTunes Store. Just do a search for Geek Gab, and you can listen to us any which way you want. Um, we're, we're leaving for today, but don't you worry. Don't you fret. We will be back.